What's an M. Night? M. Night Shyamalan, the Indian filmmaker from Philly. Oh my God, this dude's a big deal. He always you know puts some I mean? like awesome twist at the end of his movies to trick the audience. Oh yeah, yeah, like like in The Sixth Sense, you find out that the dude um, in that hairpiece the whole time, that's Bruce Willis the whole movie. That's not the twist. That's not the twist of that movie. That wasn't the twist. No. Hello, and welcome back to the Director's Wall. I'm one of your co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez. And I'm another host named Brian Connolly. Now, we are still working our way through the career of Francis Ford Coppola, as we have been for quite some time, (laughs) and will be for quite some time, if we are being honest. But we began talking about the movies of M. Night Shyamalan, we were the uh, the M night shift before we were the director's wall because we had to come up with some excuse to watch the visit. <laughs> and so every time Shyamalan, you know, he's uh, still making movies. So every time he makes a new movie, we go back, we cover that movie. We did that for Split and Glass and Old, mm-hmm. yeah, Old. And now uh, night has beckoned us into the woods of Philadelphia <laughs> to uh, knock at the cabin. Knock at the cabin no. door. The door of the cabin. The... When we went to see it in the theater, neither of us knew what the name of the movie was. We all said it wrong, but luckily the poor kid working knew exactly what we were talking about. <laughs> There's a lot of cabin-based movies and movie titles. There's... Uh, Evil Dead and uh, Cabin in the Woods. Cabin in the Woods. And, uh, There's um, uh, Cabin Fever. Knock at the Cabin. It is based on a book called A Cabin at the End of the World, not A Home at the End of the World, which is a movie. <laughs> uh, I think about people that are hot for Colin Farrell. <laughs> it's then, a documentary. Okay. Yeah. And there's <laughs> Into the Woods, Cabin in the Woods. The Woodsman. Knock at the Woods. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like should be, it should be knock at the cabin door. Well, it's, instead it's right? a command. It's telling you knock at the cabin. So uh, as you remember, if anyone is still around from the beginning, we, when we did Shemelon, always paired it with a nice scotch. Uh, why? Why was that? Because you had a lot of scotch or what was I, the... Yeah, I was at the time I was working my way through all of the different... Styles of whiskey, uh, bourbon, rye, Canadian whiskey, Irish whiskey, scotch, to see which one. Are they really any different? You know, they are. (laughs) There's big differences between all of those. And uh, scotch ended up being my favorite. It is the best. Nice. I'm a, I, bourbon's my favorite, uh, but I'm also more of a mixed drink fan. I don't, I don't really drink alcohol straight. Um, but what's nice about scotch is it is a sipping drink. It feels very grown up. It's a grown up way to drink alcohol as opposed to slamming screwdrivers in a dorm room. You just can just have a little, you know, over ice, you sip it. So we're, we're having, you brought over, I'm very thankful, the Doers Blended Scotch Whiskey White Label True Scotch Double Aged for Extra Smoothness. So there we go. That's what will help us uh, through talking about this film. Yeah, Doors is actually one of the first scotches Ooh. I ever had, um, and it is good. Uh, it is. It's one of the few that I actually remember the name of, so I believe they often have this kind of an airplane. So when I see like Doer scotch, I'm like, oh, I know what that is and what that tastes like. Yeah, um, it's, <laughs> uh, it's reasonably priced, and it tastes uh, very good for, for the price. 
All right, so I believe it's your turn to do the plot description of Knock in the Cabin. Uh, and uh, we need to make sure, even though it should be pretty obvious, we're going to spoil the heck out of this movie. Shyamalan is known for big twists and turns and plot points and reveals, and so we're going to reveal all of that maybe immediately right now while you do the plot description. So uh, <laughs> will you please, uh, AJ, take it away and right. describe uh, this film. Also, heads up, we this is based on a book with uh, a radically different ending, and so we are also going to spoil the book, which neither of us read, but uh, I did read the Wikipedia page. And it's worth spoiling the book so we can compare and contrast two wildly different endings. Yes. Uh, spoiler in the book. Also, maybe spoiler alert for Cabin in the Woods. Or any of the I ones just, we mentioned. Yeah, any ones we mentioned, Evil Dead. Like, it just, it well, might come up. Well, and a lot of these Cabin movies all have twists. There's something about that genre. Why? I don't know. <laughs> all right. So, uh, this movie starts with... Uh, seven-year-old Wen in the woods in front of a cabin. She's collecting grasshoppers, and then from the woods emerges huge, hulking Dave Batista, uh, very well-dressed in like a button-down shirt. And he has a conversation with her about catching grasshoppers, and it's it's very gentle conversation, but also a bit off, like you know something. Some some bad's gonna happen. Like this, a random man just showed up in the woods. Start talking Never to a good. Girl. Never a good sign when that happens. So and then he's like starts to hint at that he's has to ask her family to make a terrible decision, and she uh, finally runs off into the cabin where her dads are. Uh, they're Jonathan Groff and Ben Aldridge, and uh, they're just uh, vacationing there with their daughter and then right away Batista and his gang uh, Nikki Amuka Bird as Sabrina Rupert Grint as Redman and Abby Quinn as Adrienne all have these huge scary looking like <laughs> homemade medieval style weapons with yeah them. terrifying looking <laughs> if it doesn't kill you you'll at least get tetanus yeah from <laughs> They're like very big. They're, yeah. they're all very big and elaborate. Um, and so they show up. They tie up. They tie up the dads and say that they have been sent here by God because their family has been chosen to uh, make a horrible sacrifice that will save the world. And uh, they are going to offer the family to make the sacrifice. One of them has to agree to die. Right, and they can't be murdered, and they can't kill themselves. Those are the caveats. Hmm. And every time they refuse, uh, two things happen. One is one of the uh, a member of Batista's crew. They like ritualistically either kill themselves or are killed by the rest of of the crew. And then a horrible natural disaster happens and they still have access to the like satellite tv i guess uh batista and the gang which would be a cool band <laughs> uh, batista and the gang they did like cut the phone lines and there's no cell service at any cabin in the movies ever but they put on the tv and then there's the news footage of uh 
uh, earthquake and terrible uh, tsunami that you know wipes out all of big cities. And uh, one of the dads, Andrew, is an atheist and thinks that they are just being targeted because they're a gay couple. Jonathan Groff is Eric, like grew up grew up Christian and suffered a head injury when they were fighting. And now may or may not be having visions. Vision, so he's a yeah. bit uh, more inclined to believe. Yeah. And then I'll just go through this kind of quickly because it's more or less the same thing. They ask and they say no. And so then another person dies. But Andrew has a gun in the car. He manages to escape. He gets the gun. Kills sort of by accident Sabrina. Like time is running out. And Batista kills himself declaring that because they haven't made a choice the whole world has been judged uh, but there are they still still have a few moments yeah to like do a few it. minutes he, like a few the, minutes yeah. is what he says it's kind of vague just a few minutes it's like apocalypse game show basically yeah <laughs> and by this point it's really ob- it's obvious that the uh, end of the world people are were right and like the skies are black and the lightning is striking everywhere and sparking fires wherever it strikes and planes planes are falling out of the sky and you know there's terrible wind jonathan groff decides that he will make the sacrifice and he gives a actually a really wonderful moving speech to uh, to andrew to convince him to uh, to kill him to shoot him with the gun then the camera cuts away to Wen, who is hiding out in a treehouse, and a trapdoor opens up. Andrew pops his head through. She asks, did Dad save the world? And Andrew just starts crying. Uh, they get in uh, a truck, the truck that Batista and his people drove there in. We'll talk more about that later. That's one of the odd little things I actually <laughs> ended up liking about the movie. Uh, they drive to a diner where everyone's gathered around the TV, they're watching the news, and the, peop- the, the newscasters are like, it all stopped all of a sudden. Isn't that weird? And uh, the world is saved, thanks to Eric. <laughs> Good job. Worth noting that this is based on a book, as you said, and it's one of those weird things where uh, the movie was optioned before the book was even published. It's a thing that I've heard about before where... Studios kind of have deals, I think, with certain publishing houses or whatever, and they're able to kind of see manuscripts before they become a book just so they can buy it up before other people and just kind of maybe so the book and the movie come out close together-ish within That's a, been, a few years. It's been going on for a while. Like, that happened to Jaws. Yeah, The uh, the Omen. Uh, yeah. The Godfather, even, when you, if you saw, at least according to Al Ruddy, but like they kind of already saw the book before uh, the book was out and before yeah. the movie. So a common thing that Hollywood does. Is it shady? I don't know. It just depends on who, where, who you are. I've never been an author who had that happen or not happen. So I don't know if that's it depends, like... Because uh, the, the examples you've said, they're all ones that we know of. Like the book ended up being a hit. I, I don't know about any circumstances where it turned out the book flopped and then the studio was like, Nah. <laughs> Though there are movies that are based on books, and I couldn't name one right now where the no one's heard of the book. Well, I guess this is one though. Like no one, I don't remember ever hearing about this book. I, yeah, I never. But, heard and of I'm this not book. up to date on new books either, though. 
I'm more of a fan of books based on movies. Uh, I, I have a copy of the Gremlins novelization. Uh, the Gremlins 2 novelization, great. Because if you've seen Gremlins 2, uh, in the theater, and I believe on the DVD and Blu-ray, the film breaks and it's revealed that the Gremlins broke the film. On the VHS, the tape breaks and it gets all staticky. And then in the book, the book breaks and there's a chapter where it looks like it got printed all wrong and it reveals that the Gremlins, it gets really meta that they somehow like were in the publishing house of the book. So That's so clever. I love that. <laughs> Joe Dante, genius. Uh, but yeah, And I remember in college... The person who wrote the novelization of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, spoke to my uh, class. I was in a class about adaptation. And he came and was like, yeah, I wrote this book about this, and let me tell you, did it. It was like a really interesting uh, conversation or lecture. Uh, so it's a way that it used to be a way to make a living. Does it still happen? I don't know. I don't. Is that still a thing? Mo- I, books based on movies? I think it's it's very rare yeah. now. Yeah. Um, and it's usually something dumb like the that was that uh, History Channel series produced by Mark Burnett and Jane Seymour called The Bible. Right? Oh, is there a book called The Bible based on right? the... Uh... Yeah, then like all your favorite stories from the series The Bible gathered here in one If there book. was only a book before that that did the same thing, I don't remember what it's called, mate. I think it's, it's called one the of Bible. those things where I'm just like kicking myself. Like, why didn't I think of that? I'd have so much money, and all I'd have to do was just republish the a public domain book. Yeah, yeah, I guess yeah. There you go. Yeah. I hope the cover just says like based on the TV, the Bible, based on the TV series, the Bible. It does. It does. I saw that Barnes and Noble. Uh, oh, the world is dumb. Um. Anyways, we went on a tangent. But it was uh, – so then the book came out, uh, and then the book or or the manuscript or whatever was adapted by Steve Desmond and Michael Sherman, who I don't think ever made anything else of no – like a short or something. They're, 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 I don't know who they are. They have uh, some uh, shorts. Guys with good agents or managers for some reason. Like maybe they made a living off of spec scripts or something that never got made. Good for them. Uh, and then Shyamalan was going to come on as a producer because the script was kind of hot in Hollywood. And then he decided he wanted to direct it, and then he decided that he wanted to rewrite it. Uh, but they're both still credited, so they got paid, which is great. Yeah, and who and knows what's still in there or what's the book or what. But we do know the endings are very different. Uh, do we want to wait to talk about that till we get to the ending and then go into all the ending stuff? Or do you want to talk about that now? Uh, let's, 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 wait. Wait. let's wait. I don't want us to get sidetracked. Away from talking about um, everything think, before, <laughs> yeah. And first, let's start with probably the best thing about this movie, Dave Batista. He's so good. He is so good. And that beginning scene with him coming out of the woods is great. It's a great scene, and it's classic good Shyamalan, where it's just kind of it's beautiful. And this was shot on thirty five, which is nice that people still do that. Not a lot of people do that. Uh, so the movie looks great, and there's a lot of great the camera work. This is definitely like, as with old, it's Shyamalan back into kind of being Hitchcockian, which he kind of lost a bit with uh, the visit because it was supposed to be shot on a camcorder, and even like glass just kind of didn't. But this has like a tension built into the filmmaking. Yeah, that the uh, opening scene uh, is it's real tense. Yeah, and he is so good because Dave Batista plays it like. 
I'm a friendly guy talking to a child. And so you're thinking immediately like, well, this can't be good. Why would a strange – and he's a large man or at least in a movie he looks like a – he's a professional – wrestler or was so i'm assuming he's big you know who knows in hollywood everyone's yeah. short but like he's he's it's... huge and then he's talking to a seven-year-old yeah. child so you're already thinking of like the scene in frankenstein when the monster is talking to the little girl with the flowers right before he throws her in the water and kills her so you're just waiting for something really bad to happen and yeah, batista is so <laughs> he's so gentle and yeah. calm that you really do believe he means well. Yeah, he means well that he, that he's kind, right? Or that he's uh, rooted in kindness. Yeah. But because of the situation, because it's a huge man who appeared out of the woods, <laughs> the woods. to a little girl. Not good. You know that something is <laughs> up, something's going to happen. Well, because well, I don't know about you and if you've ever stayed out in the middle of the woods, but when you are out in the middle of the woods, you're there... To intentionally escape people, to get away, to have the most privacy you could possibly ever get that you couldn't get in the city or even on some farmland where you can see your neighbors. Like cabins in the woods is, is implying like you're really – you're cutting yourself off from society even though this cabin has like 600 channels of news or whatever, <laughs> which they shouldn't have. If you're going to relax in the cabin, you should have no news channels on your TV. Come on. But uh, – so seeing someone just literally come out of the woods, not like a car that pulled up in the driveway, like he just walks out of the woods, is immediately kind of terrifying and very unnerving. Uh, and so it just sets the tone like you're already kind of like, you know, clutching your, your arm, armchair. Like you're kind of like, ooh, yeah, like you're just – it's uh, great. Um, and then there is a knock at the cabin because you think, oh, they, they – went past the knock but they do because the, the girl runs in all panicked the dads are like oh your, your imagination blah 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 and then you hear a knock <laughs> and then the movie isn't as good as that first scene unfortunately yeah it never um, is but it's still I, I guess look I guess we could talk about the things we really liked about it first before we get real nitpicky in the plot holes like, why don't we do that why don't we start on a positive and that way if people really love this movie, they can turn it off and not listen to us uh, pick apart the things that don't make <laughs> sense. Um, <laughs> the acting from pretty much everyone is really good. I mean, like, the, the Batista is definitely the standout. But, like, that girl, this is the first thing she's ever done. Or at least the first movie she's ever done, I think. And as is most Shyamalan movies, he gets a great uh, performance. Um yeah, the only other thing on her filmography is a music video. So just like with literally every movie he's ever made, he's able to – well, not everyone, not The Visit. But for every other movie, he's able to get these great performances from little, little kids. Not like 12-year-olds, but like this girl seems like she's maybe seven. Uh, Kristen you know? Quee is her name. Yeah, and she's really good. And, and he gets good people to work good – Actors for the kids to play off of. Like Bruce Willis is great with Haley Joel Osment. Mm -hmm. Willis again is great with the the kid playing his son. Unbreakable. In yeah. Unbreakable. Uh, Mel Gibson is mm -hmm. great. And Joaquin Phoenix. They're both great yeah. with uh, the kids in signs. Uh, yeah, so the scene, it just plays as well as it possibly can. 
And it has that great Shyamalan feel, that, like what he did in the village, um, where it's like the it's really like tight on people's faces. Oh yeah, like and you're like right up on their face. And in the theater, it was amazing. Like when you're sitting there and you're seeing just like a huge widescreen shot of these two actors talking, and they're doing that Otsu Jonathan Demi thing where they're looking right into the camera, so it's like they're talking to you, and it's cutting back and forth between these two, and you're, it just feels cramped, and it just adds to that tension. And uh, Rupert Grint, I also thought was fun because he's clearly just hamming it up. Uh, Shyamalan had worked with him before on The Servant, a show that we have not covered on this because we don't want to pay for Apple TV. <laughs> and and, and uh, there's already like many, many seasons of that show. Uh, maybe someday we'll review the pilot or I don't know. I know Shyamalan's directed a few. And Rupert Grint, I believe, is the main actor in whatever that show was about. I have no idea what the plot of that show is. Uh, but he's good, and he's, of course, also the biggest star, I think, other than Batista, because of the Harry Potter movies. I, I uh, would think so. Um, theater people would probably argue that Jonathan Groff is... Because he was in uh, Hamilton? He was in Hamilton. Yeah. He plays King George. It took me a while to recognize him because I've only ever seen him with uh, with a wig, <laughs> <laughs> with a uh, a oh. uh, neoclassical era wig. Uh, and acting from everybody is really good. Like nobody is is bad. And I think sometimes when Shyamalan movies don't work, whether it's Lady in the Water or The Visit, the acting tends to kind of get a little too big and doesn't quite. You know, the guy talking about the hot dogs and the buns or whatever and the happening. It just, or Mark Wahlberg. It just kind of throw. It kind of goes and it doesn't work. Uh, and the, the, or the, as the plot gets more ridiculous, the actors feel they need to go bigger to sell this ridiculous plot. But in this one, everyone really, maybe because it's a single location thing, this clearly feels sort of like a COVID era movie, just like Old did. Uh, though Old was definitely, I think, feel more cinematic because it was out, maybe because it was outside. But like this has that really only does take place in the cabin and the diner at the very end, and that and then other than flashbacks, um, that's kind of it. And it really is only like you know eight people, and uh, and so I think for that it has this nice claustrophobic feel. All the actors are doing a great job, um, and uh, that definitely keeps you watching the movie to the end, especially all anchored with Batista, who luckily is the last of these people to kill themselves. <laughs> so you keep watching. And you didn't say in the thing, but one of the twists is revealed that they are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, which you if, you, if you knew more about that, you could get clued into the colors that they're wearing or how their personalities are. Not certainly what one of the dads figures out is like, oh, they're the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, twist, that's, I would count that as twist one. Um, and there's great sequences in this movie um, that I really liked. Just any time, the first time that uh, the person died, when Rupert Grint kills himself, like this is an R-rated Shyamalan movie too, which is also weird and rare. That's I think the only other R-rated movie was The Happening. Yeah. Which I don't know why that movie's rated R. Um, the guy right, laying down in front of the lawnmower. Yeah, that's guess. it. Like, <laughs> yeah, pretty the, tame. It's the it's, deaths, but like they're not tame. even they're not even gross. No, in the happening. Mm -mm. 
But I mean, and honestly, this doesn't feel like an R-rated movie either because yeah, I was worried watching like, oh, we're gonna see these people die, these horrible deaths, some of these jagged medieval things. But it's all off camera, every single death in the entire movie, except for no, even Batista's right. Like he slits his throat, but you kind of see it like it's angled in a way where you just, you don't see it happen. The right? camera pans it down, pans and, and then we the just blood. see blood drip down onto uh, his shirt and then onto the ground. Which I really liked. Again, that's like a classy like Hitchcock move. Like that's definitely like an old Hollywood way of like you could totally get away with showing the most gratuitous death. See cocaine bear this week in the theater if you want to see like blood and guts but like he does a classy move of the camera just like a reservoir dogs panning away from the ear being cut off and it's more upsetting because you don't really understand what these tools do so in this movie you're kind of using your imagination a bit of like i guess he's cutting his head off or something but it's oh it is more just on the fam the poor family's face as they're watching these people die in front of them, which I feel is much more effective emotionally than if it was just a gratuitous gore fest, like every other movie that takes place in a cabin that's a horror film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just some great camera work, cinematography by, uh, you got two cinematographers here. You got, uh, this is a name I will probably mispronounce. As any cinematographer's name. Yeah. Uh, Jaren uh, Blaschke. Who is one of the best? Like he does all the movies by um, the the lighthouse guy, the uh, Robert Eggers. Yeah, he did the Northman. Um, More importantly, he did the lighthouse, which is considered one of the best looking good. movies. You uh, know, he also uh, did some episodes or an episode of Servant. There so you that's go, how keeping he it in the family. Worked out. The other cinematographer is named Lowell Meyer. Uh, this is the most notable thing he's done, but he's also worked on Servant. Yes. Um, but, I mean, there's no big there's no big uh, switch. It's not like, oh, this last <laughs> half of the movie looks like shit. It, well, must he, be, it must not be the same guy. Like, it all looks good. And he looks worked good. on Thunder Road, which is a movie made here in Austin, a local film. Huh, and so cool. I, wonder if, I wonder if that is the person who shot, like, maybe the news stuff or like it's weird to have two cinematographers one that's like known for these beautifully shot like like stuff and this other guy who's like good but more for like low budget stuff uh that's not as well known so i wonder if that's like if they shot like the new stuff or maybe i don't know i didn't find anything about that like did he shoot the f i wouldn't think they would divide up like the flashbacks because that's another thing we didn't talk about is that the movie has a lot of flashbacks but, uh, yeah, I wonder why there's two. My guess is the news reports, maybe. But because someone operated the camera for those, that counts as... I don't know. I'm just speculating here. That, uh, I mean, that might be... <laughs> I don't know. If anyone knows, please tell. Yeah. Please tell. I want credit so, where credit's due. There's on uh, that. a lot of good, like, camera, like movements and swooshes and like shots invert it's cool it's and it's very effective mm -hmm. the the flashbacks are um i mean i guess they're well done enough or well utilized enough um because it's and this will start us in talking about things we don't like <laughs> because this is a home invasion hostage movie right and you're yeah. just trapped there in in the cabin, and it starts out with they're already on vacation. We don't see them at their house, like, yeah. loading up to get 
to know them for a little bit first. We see them, yeah, in flashback doing stuff. Yeah, but. we get to know uh, Eric and Andrew and their situation and their backgrounds. If it, and that feels very novelistic. Like I can see, like ev- like every other chapter would, you know, jump back. I, I think. I think it would if I was reading the novel, but in the movie, it feels like padding. Because I feel like what's this is to me where I start seeing the cracks of like why I ended up not liking this film is the whole fun of other Cabin in the Woods types of movies, whether it's the movie Cabin in the Woods or Cabin Fever or Evil Dead or Evil Dead 2, is that you have this feeling of isolation. You have this feeling of you, you are really in the middle of nowhere and these people are fighting for their lives against whatever outside force, be it supernatural or natural. And to have these constant flashbacks kind of takes you out of that mood, at least for me. It took me out of the mood of this – the, the tension always kind of went away because now we're just seeing them driving their car and seeing Casey and the Sunshine Band's boogie shoes or them uh, – the adoption agency I think was one where they, they adopt their daughter or something like that. There's like there's a lot of like – or them, their, their parents are just came over for dinner and there was a, a, a fight – and it just none of it, to me, it definitely took the tension away every time in a bad way. It, it wasn't like adding to it, and it to me it all felt ultimately very unnecessary because I feel like just maybe because the actors are good and the writing was good and the scenes in the cabin that you do know who these people are. You really understand. You don't need to know anything about any of these people before this other than what they share with to each other. Like whether they were. I'm really glad they didn't show like the four. You know, invasion people like their backstory that would felt like an episode of Lost, but or, but this kind of does feel like an episode of Lost in a way because we're just getting all these flashbacks of them just doing regular stuff, and there's too many of them, and to me it didn't add anything at all, and I found it really interesting. So when we saw this in the theater, there was literally three people in the theater. It was you, me, and some old guy in the back. And there was one of these flat, maybe the third flashback, where we all went to the bathroom at the same time, which means that this movie literally played to an empty house for about four minutes. Did you notice that? Yeah. In the- we all got up and it's like, there's the bathroom break. It's another flashback, and we can safely miss this part. So the, all three of us decided that this was nothing we needed to ingest to enjoy this movie. Completely unspoken, <laughs> and I was waiting. I was actually waiting Wait for, for another flashback to go to the bathroom. Yeah, well, so maybe that's the point. Maybe that's what movies need is, like, the, now as movies get longer, wouldn't have been great if Avatar 2 had, like, a few, you know, flashbacks inserted and they were unnecessary well, Avatar, so you know to go to the bathroom. Avatar had the, uh, they just have, like, scenes of marveling and the quote-unquote natural beauty. Well, I couldn't Pandora. leave that because I was marveling. Well, I was like, eh, they're right. going to they're gonna be marveling for a couple more minutes. I can go to the bathroom. It is mean, back. though, to have a movie that long that's that much water in it because you're going to have to pee. I didn't know. I didn't even have to pee during Avatar 2. I sat through the whole 200 minutes. I thought I, We intentionally got to see close to the aisle because I was like, I'm clearly going to have to pee for a few times. I didn't because that's how much I loved Avatar 2, The Way of Water. That I was just, I held, I didn't even need to hold it in. I didn't even think about it. Like there are plane rides that are shorter that I've, I could get obsessed with and having to pee a bunch, but Avatar Two, I was just stuck. Maybe because of the three D, I don't know. But <laughs> this movie, we all at about the hour mark, you, me, and the old man were like, "Let's go to the bathroom at this part. We don't need to know what's get. It's another flashback because that's kind of how like after. Like, and then then it has that problem 
you're aware of the pattern of like, okay, every 15 minutes we're going to get a flashback of them at happier times or a character trait that we're going to learn about. But it's all unnecessary. I, I wished it was like a tighter, better 90-minute thriller that never left the cabin. So we, uh, back last year, we saw The Fablemans. And in front of that was a trailer for Cabin in the Woods. No. The cabin. Knock at the cabin. Knock at the cabin door. <laughs> no, there's, there's no door. Just knock at the cabin. Damn. We'll get it someday. Oh, this, this title, man. This fucking title. All right. So there was a trailer for the new M. Night Shyamalan movie. And afterwards, we talk like, what do you think? And I'm, I was not excited because either it's real or it's not real. That's it. And it's a home invasion movie, which yeah. means that most of the movie is going to be just people trapped in a house with like the hostages being tormented in one way or another and people tormenting them and not letting them leave. And... That's it, and I don't like home invasion movies because I mean, like the thought of that is, you know, it's it's terrible, it's scary, right? You know, like the Panic Room, but also, well, it's like you know, like uh, it's like all high tech because Panic Room, right? <laughs> but uh, and Forrest Whitaker, he makes it more interesting. But they're just all trapped here, and it's just that dynamic stretched out. There's very few movies like I can think of where I did enjoy that style uh or that that storytelling device like panic room is one the other is uh key largo i think uh, with with uh humphrey bogart and edward g robinson and lionel barrymore they're all trapped uh during a hurricane i think and that one's really good because it's a classic <laughs> there's a reason it's a classic movie <laughs> but everything else is just like okay god like how long is this gonna how long are you gonna drag it out and yeah, either it's uh, either it's real and they make the sacrifice and one of them is now dead, or they don't and then the world ends. And they're clearly not going to do that halfway through that's the movie. It. <laughs> so that's it. it. Or really it's, redundant. Or it's uh, fake, or it's not real. In which case they just fight off uh, these crazy people. Bad, yeah, they just yeah. fight off bad crazy people. So right away from the very premise. It's limited as to what it could happen. It's not like like anything else, like Avatar 2, like, right? They have to leave the forest. They could have gone anywhere, right? And they went to the New Zealand of... <laughs> of, of uh, they went to the New Zealand yeah. of uh, Pandora and <laughs> hung out with the whales and Cliff yeah. Curtis. It's like there were potential, right? There's yeah. like potential. Could do where anything. Go? Could do anything. Most movies, it's like potential for where's this story going to go? And that's what gets you excited Right, mm-hmm. but with knock at the cabin, yeah, knock at the cabin. <laughs> you I did got it. it. You I did got it. it. <laughs> well, this is it. We're stuck in this house. <laughs> That's it. There's only like so many ways it can play out. Yeah, and none of them are very exciting. Unless and it's uh, Bruce Campbell fighting his own hand and then getting sucked into a dimension that takes him to medieval times. Yeah, that's <laughs> how you do it. it. Or cabin in the woods. Which, spoiler alert, let's ruin that one. That one really goes into a crazy place because that one starts out like this sort of thing and then it turns into this insane, bigger story of testing on people and this government thing and then raising this kind of Cthulhu-type monster and this human sacrifice. That movie goes wild. 
truly wild. And this movie, I think, maybe thinks it does, but it's pretty much exactly one of the two things you think is going to happen happens. I, and here, and, I don't think any, I don't think either of those options results in an interesting movie. Jonathan Groff decides that he will sacrifice himself so we can rebuild and you know it's there's hope for tomorrow yeah okay good good right the other side of that the way the novel ends or what happens in the novel is uh andrew goes to get the gun there's a fight and uh when is accidentally shot and killed and leonard says leonard the batista character he says that doesn't count because she didn't willingly sacrifice herself. So you still have to pick. And the dads are like, well, like screw any world where that, her death doesn't count as a sacrifice and we're not going along with any God that doesn't accept that sacrifice. So they choose to end it all. And the catch is that if they don't pick anyone to sacrifice, then uh, the world ends, everyone dies except for them, and they just have to wander around the ruins of Earth until they die a natural death, <laughs> or you know, they step on a, a rusty nail and die of tetanus. <laughs> uh, which, I mean, like. Sequel! That, that sounds. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, my dinner with Andre meets Mad yeah. Max, there's two guys, <laughs> that's it, nothing else. I mean, which, yeah. I don't know, to me, that just sounds like a letdown, flame. I gotta say, I was very disappointed that it actually ended up being the end of the world, because I feel a much better third ending to me would be you never know. Like I like the idea of. I mean, I know like I'm now critiquing a movie that it's not, but I'm gonna just go there. That's what. Uh, that's what Gene. That's what Gene Siskel loved to do. So let's do it. But I think like. In my mind, I was like, and maybe I think Take Shelter kind of did that. The the Michael Shannon movie where he thinks the world is ending. He makes his family kind of go with him to like kind of get ready for the end of the world. And that movie kind of ends on this note of like, was it real? Was it just a storm? We don't know. Was it in his head? Uh, and I just feel like this movie would have been better if they did make the sacrifice. It got to the point emotionally where they made the sacrifice and then nothing happened. And then you're like, was there nothing happened because he made the sacrifice or was there nothing happened because it was never going to happen to begin with and you never know. And that's, a, to me, a more satisfying ending of like, and to me, that's also a, a more test of faith, which is what the movie's supposed to be about. But if you have these people not make the sacrifice until they literally see the world ending, then are they really get, doing anything with faith at that point? No, they aren't. They're just like, oh, shit, the world is ending. I guess we got to take care of this, you know. And so that has nothing to do with faith. And it's just a willingness. That's you just a like willingness I, to die. The willingness to die. Like whereas faith would be if they really didn't know the world was going to end or not. If they really weren't sure whether this was true or not, but they had because of all the shit they went through and because of their daughter and like, well, but what if? What if? That what if? That what if? And there's a little bit of that in the movie with the Eric character, like kind of being like, well, but I think I saw a vision. And what if they're right? And every time somebody dies, they turn on the news and there is a thing. Something bad has happened in the world, and one could say that's the doing of this thing, or one could say, well, that's the world now. Is you know, if you turn on the TV now in twenty twenty three, there's something terrible going on, whether it's 
multiple trains derailing or a pandemic or a war in the Ukraine or whatever. Like there's something bad going on everywhere all the time. So you could say it's a coincidence or you could say, are we doing this? And that uncertainty and their love of their daughter would then have to give them truly have to have faith and like, you know what? We need to believe in this is being true and we're just going to have to make the sacrifice and not know whether it was true or not because that is what actual faith is, is the unknown. Like p true faith is not actually knowing, but it's feeling and you have, that's why faith is not a definite and never is, but it is a definite within your soul because to you, you think that you have to believe whether it's real or not. And this movie never actually goes there, even though that's what the themes of the movies tell me that it's supposed to be about. Yeah. That's, <laughs> no, very, very well said. Very well said. Um, when watching this movie... I was thinking that it's this fits within Shyamalan's wheelhouse because though he is not Catholic, uh, I mean he went to Catholic school I think in in uh, Philadelphia. That's enough to earn you to be a full time Catholic. I feel yeah. though. Yeah, I mean you're definitely you're familiar enough with how it works with the perpetual guilt and <laughs> the uh, guilt guilt riddled joy of everything, right? <laughs> it's like to me like this. It's like it, it's a very Catholic thing of like, okay, here's a horrible decision that you have to make. Like, but I don't, I don't want to. Well, you like, do well, Lent. Sorry, you got to. <laughs> you got to give up meat you for got forty to, days. Or like, well, fine, I won't, and then something bad can happen to me. No, something bad will happen to everyone else. Yeah, that's that's how that's how they get to Andrew Garfield in Silence. The, the shogunate, they figure out, well, if we just keep torturing him, he's just going to put up with it because he believes in this, uh, in this deus figure. But uh, if we start torturing other people, then maybe he'll, he'll give up his he'll faith. He'll break, yeah. Right? So I, I find that angle of it interesting, but only in the context of M. Knight's filmography. <laughs> right? Like, like stuff with like signs... And Unbreakable and Sixth Sense. I, I think that part of it about faith and what your role in the world is, where you fit in, uh, it ties into his filmography thematically that Definitely. way. But it's when I think that what the ending you described, which didn't happen in the movie, <laughs> is more interesting, but I don't think it's scary or thrilling no but, you need the cg of the comp the you know the pieces of planes falling yeah. down and exploding and but in fairness what happens in the movie isn't thrilling no because you kind of it's one of the two options in your head that you think is going to happen either it's like you said they're going to fight these people off and you're going to be like they were crazy or the world is actually going to end and they're going to have to figure it out and in your mind it, because it's a Shyamalan movie you're like we're going to figure it out because movies never really end on a bummer note Rarely, <laughs> they usually yeah. are about some some positive thing about something at the end of it. The kids live in Shyamalan's movies. Yeah, like he, like reading yeah. that. He's not gonna kill a kid except for the happening when that kid gets shot through the door. Right, hardcore. <laughs> but but yeah, it's interesting because like sign because I guess you could say Unbreakable and Signs, and uh, to an extent maybe even the happening or the village. And even later, like literally everything in the sixth sense is this sort of what if, what if, what if. And at the end, it is for all of them like, well, here's the definite answer. It is, he is a superhero. He's the ghost. 
They are just living in modern times. They are there is an alien invasion, so it does do the same thing this movie does. But for some reason, those movies are more effective. Whereas this one, it just feels like a letdown. It, uh, it builds. It builds to that, and the emotional, um, the emotions of the movies, the character arcs are tied up in that big revelation. To use a, <laughs> to use a uh, like a semi-religious word in that revelation and it comes at the end and then that changes them in one way or another and then they can play out the climax of the movie and it ends like shortly thereafter yeah but here it seems pretty clear halfway through the movie maybe a little later that these these crazy people are not crazy and the world really is ending it's like the plane thing is too weird like the the tsunami and the disease, you're like, well, that could be sure. Because Ben, uh, <laughs> Ben Aldridge, Andrew, right? He's not believing it, and he's like, the guy kept he kept looking at his watch, he kept looking at his watch, and then they did this thing, and then he turned on the TV, so he knew that this was going to be on. It's like pre-recorded. It's all part of a setup, mm-hmm. right? And the first time they turn on the TV, it's uh, just it's just an infomercial where we see. You guessed it, M. Night Shyamalan as the host of an infomercial. And I, I actually, this is one of the things I, I really liked. I liked his cameo in this. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> it, was, it was silly because I think he knows at this point that his cameos are going to be... Is he still like an air fryer or something like that? Yeah, it's silly. And it happens before the movie gets serious, right? Yeah. So it's like, we know he's going to show up. When's he going to show up? Well, I'll do it now. Here I am. Wasn't that a goof? Now, now we can get onto the serious stuff, right? And then it gets then the broadcast gets interrupted with news about uh, this earthquake and and the tsunami. Yeah, it could have been pre-recorded, or it's you know could have been a thing. But then after the second person, uh, I think Adrienne is the next to uh, to die. And then they turn on the TV. So there's been a spike in COVID nineteen. You know, it's like it's not COVID, but it but, is but COVID. It's COVID. Yeah, and it's like it's been a spike, like right now. Oh my god! And that's kind <laughs> of like that's not how it worked, man. Like you remember a year ago, right? That's not how. <laughs> so like all of a sudden we're hearing about it's not like oh my god, time. it happened right now within the last hour. Cases skyrocketed. Unless it was maybe you know Captain Trips from the stand, <laughs> but then what? Once they get into the every airplane in the world is falling to the ground, then that's so weird. Then it's to me that's when the point of like the movie turns into like oh they are right the world is ending because that's not a normal thing. And part of my head was like, are they terrorists? Did they set up a thing somehow? And I'm like, no, it just feels like oh gosh, this movie's actually going to be like about that this would be thing. because at yeah. that point it's too far to just. Pick on a gay couple, you know, right? Like what um, what Andrew thinks because uh, we get this information from one of his flashbacks that he was attacked. I forget if it was Eric and Andrew together or if it's just him. I think it was them together at a bar, and a redneck like tries to fight them or does fight them and beats them up, and then he's convinced that the Rupert Grint character is that guy, and he thinks that like this is clearly a setup by this asshole. Because they all these people say like we met on the internet, we have the same vision, and he's like, this is just this maniac 
getting all of you people to come against us because they I think they took him to court or some something happened and they think this is like this guy's like you know vendetta against this gay yeah. couple and with the tsunami maybe this could be part of like his revenge or part of this group persecuting this gay couple but then at a like not shortly thereafter it becomes way too big way too big <laughs> and then yeah planes fall out of the sky and yeah. lightning turns everything into fire like well okay so yeah this isn't just picking on <laughs> on this couple because they're gay and they keep they keep saying that um Batista's character keeps saying like well we weren't expecting uh, like a, a same-sex couple and like but it has nothing to do with that and he says that like maybe this is more clear in the book them uh, the crazy people saying that as like trying to cover themselves but here Shaman doesn't focus on that yeah <laughs> you, you think that maybe it would come up more because they are a gay couple that are being told, but we're not doing this to you because you're gay or you haven't been chosen because you're gay. But it's not really explored, and so it's just uh, not, not not like a loose thread, but just something that maybe should have been like dropped. Like they, they, them bringing that up, not not they, the couple being gay, but like just don't have those, don't have Batista say though, keep saying that again and again because it makes it seem like it's going to be something. Yeah. But then it doesn't yeah. turn out to be anything. But that opens up the movie for it to get maybe problematic uh, because they are a gay couple that have to make a decision about the like Christian gods end of the world <laughs> thing. Yeah, yeah. And so like, it, <laughs> and I can see that not settling well with people. And there are some critics I read that really honed in on that and they're like this movie's terrible because of this huh like yeah, i didn't even think of that those critics aren't wrong but the movie the movie doesn't focus on it so it's just it's just kind of there and if i'm going to just get to critique the movie that the ending that is i feel like it didn't need the scene in the diner it should have ended with the dad going to the treehouse being like yep dad saved the world the end <laughs> the end and they get in their car or maybe they find the truck that was parked there because that part's cool yeah it's cool because they so Batista and the gang they like slash the, <laughs> they slash all of the tires of of Eric and Andrew's uh, SUV so they can't escape but Andrew knows that they got here somehow they didn't just walk here so they must have driven here in a truck or a car or something that is has to be close by. So yeah. we need to escape and look for that truck. Look for the truck. And they do. And I love that because it's logical. <laughs> but the movie should have ended like there, the end. Like the scene in the diner is just so unnecessary. It's just going to be like, it stopped the thing. Well, they, that... like Everyone's saved. Everyone's talking to their loved ones on the phone and being like, I missed you. I'm so glad you didn't die in this apocalypse that or whatever in, that scene in the diner more so okay so there's a scene in the diner and then they leave the diner they get in the truck and they turn on the truck and the radio's on and it's that Casey and the Sunshine Band Boogie Shoes <laughs> which if you are ever listening to that in a movie something fucking terrible is going to happen to you that nev that song never it's just in Boogie plays Nights in the movie. <laughs> and bad stuff happens to those people, man. <laughs> it does. All right. And if you if it's a movie if, if you are in the movie theater and you see a trailer 
and Boogie Shoes is on, <laughs> it is not a fun movie. That is not an advertisement for a fun movie. So, the song is going to stop, it's and something bad is going to happen. Right? Gonna... So yeah. they're listening to Boogie Shoes when they drive the movie's there. Over. Right, uh, so they turn on the radio, <laughs> and Boogie Shoes is playing, and uh, Andrew turn turns off the the radio, and then um, it's quiet for a while. But then, I don't know if Wen turns it back on or he turns it back on, but they turn the music back on, and they're like, "Yeah," Damn. and then they drive away in the end. And I think I can get how that it's it's a little bit of a joke, and I think it's supposed to be hopeful, like. Uh, dad made this sacrifice so that we could have our lives and be happy. Well, somewhere right? in the movie, there's a vision or a memory or dream of them thinking of their daughter as a grown-up. Mm-hmm. Am I right? Did yeah. I remember that right? I yeah, don't remember that's... how that fits in, but somebody has like a... That's, um, that's Or Eric's... when they're talking at the end and he's giving his plea to why he should be killed, they like you show their daughter much older yeah. and being like, See, wouldn't it be great to be there for that? And again, if that was all there was and you didn't know the rules any, that would be much stronger emotionally, but whatever. Um, okay, I'm going to get even more nitpicky just because this scotch is almost gone and we're just talking. Um, so if they had succeeded, if the family was like, great, we're going to kill this guy. The, guy, the dad's like, yep, kill me early on in the movie. Before anyone, before Rupert Grint even offed himself, then, then what would have happened? Because like... What's, what's good about how this movie ends is they kill the guy, but then a piece of airplane or comet or god dirt or whatever hits the cabin and explodes it. So there's no, like, dad having to answer to the murder of his husband, which, you know, Dateline episode in the making would have been the case. Like, there would have been some sort of investigation or something. So if they had just straight up been like, we killed him, done, would the four horsemen then be like, well, we'll clean this up and we'll hide the body and... You know, we'll help you. Or would they just vanish? Like, and it's sort of it's sort of confusing. Is like, are these people were they regular people and they became the full horsemen of the apocalypse, or that was the fate of their lives, but they didn't know that, or they just like because in the the story of the full horsemen of the apocalypse, they just show up out of wherever you know, yeah. heaven or hell or the limbo or whatever. They just kind of show up to earth. Not, to, to, you know, not, not heaven, but like that one, that one sketchy room that God doesn't want you going, going and here. And no, not yet. Not yet. Stay away like, from hey, that just hang out here in the waiting room of heaven till we, till the apocalypse. So like disappointing that they weren't horses because in any other movie, they are, no matter what era, they still show up on horses because they're the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Here they just all arrive in a truck. Okay. I didn't notice it was a truck called something with a horse name. Uh, but yeah, would they have just killed, like, would they have, like, buried the body in the woods and cleaned up the blood? And then they had to, like, how do they explain to the guy's family that his husband's dead? Because, like, no one else in the universe would know the world was almost over. And there, there was one part I did like, uh, among a few, was uh, them talking about, well, maybe this has always happened. Maybe always a couple has had to make this decision and for all we've known the world has always been at threat every few years and somebody has to make a sacrifice and now we're the one this time you know and i thought that was an interesting idea of like maybe every 15 years the four horsemen show up and like you gotta do it and every year someone's like sure you know (laughs) though this is the only time where it's gotten or maybe not maybe other things in history we're supposed to have read is when it went too far and, that would have whatever. been that would you know, have been cool if um, that had been followed up on. And it's kind of uh, it alludes to that. 
ultimately, though, I found like it's too bad because I loved Old so much. I really thought that was the best Shyamalan movie since Signs, honestly. And this movie just kind of, yeah, I just I didn't go in thinking it was going to be good, but I kind of came in hoping it was going to be at least like a fun little movie. And I think the obviousness of it and the and the redundancy, repetitiveness of this plot. Ultimately Me too, and this is a, isn't even a, a very long movie. It, but it felt like a long movie. It did. <laughs> it's like, I think it's under two hours, for sure. It's got to be, in my mind, it's like under 100 minutes, maybe, even. But it just felt like it just kind of... It's just one of those movies that within 15, 20 minutes, you basically know what it is. Because you get the sense of the pattern of it. And you're like, yep, it's going to be this till the end. And either the end is going to be this or this. Yeah, so, and that, so then the tension kind of left the movie as the movie went on because you kind of knew like they were going to see each one of these people kill themselves, da 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 da, da and then the end, whether it's real or not. I was hoping it would be a nebulous ending, but I don't think Shyamalan can do that. So this is one of those movies that's well made but not scary, right? There's this uh, um, horror movie with Anthony Hopkins about exorcists uh, called The Right. It's well made. (laughs) It's kind of creepy, but it's not scary. Like this movie, it's well made, it's well acted, but it's not scary. It's not not tense. I I thought it was at the beginning. The the, the beginning, like the first half hour, like up until maybe a little bit past when Rupert Grint dies, I was like, oh, fuck, what's going on? This is scary. And so I was getting kind of like, I don't know if it was scary, but it was definitely was tense. I was definitely like, what's going to happen? Are we going to see? And knowing it was an R-rated movie and these people with these tools, these weapons, I'm like, are we going to see one of these dads? Before they even laid out the rules and stuff, I'm like, I'm going to see a dad get his head beaten. Is this going to be like a torture thing? Is something bad going to happen to the kid? Like I was getting worried for sure. But then once I realized that none of that was going to happen, then that kind of like definitely once the the quote unquote villains or whatever you want to call them say, well, we can't hurt you, then that kind of like takes away a lot of attention because they're like, well, okay, they can just wait these maniacs out and who cares? All right, you know. And it was more just like I don't want to see some gross gore. It was kind of more my concern by that point. Uh, and luckily there wasn't any. Yeah. But it definitely takes away any of the, I don't know. So I, I and I don't think that if they had decided to let the world end, that would have been any more interesting. No, it would not have been more exciting, right? Just more planes falling and CGI fire. And it would right? turn into the road, and there'd be some epilogue of them walking through some dusty, you know, terrain. Right, that's it. That's not. <laughs> that's not exciting. No, that's how Cabin in the Woods ends too. The the two people left. They're like, wow, like any world that where they have to do this again and again it's not worth saving so let's burn it down (laughs) and like okay cool end of the world all right well i guess i'm dead now so that's it yeah i mean the movie ends because there's nothing out there's nothing left yeah it's it's not more it's not more interesting it's not more exciting it and it's not very like you think it would be like yeah burn it down (laughs) and i'm doing the the metal the slayer uh uh, sign the devil horns right now <laughs> but if you watch that play it out on film to me when cat that happens in cabin in the woods it's kind of disappointing just all right that's it movie's over all right but i think it works though because that movie's so fun and silly to begin with so like if you're gonna have this ridiculous like fuck it ending 
I feel it works for that movie because the whole movie has this sort of like punk rock comedy sort of feel. To, like it has like a fun edginess built into it. Like a, that movie's clearly only trying to have fun and the whole time. You, yeah, you, you are right about that. I didn't particularly like Cabin in the Woods. I love. I, love I think. Ca- I think because I think it it, it is a, a rip off of the movie Stay Tuned. Oh yeah, the great movie. Yeah, it's a movie. Yeah. It's a movie about the Hell Company, right? Yeah. Where people work, and it's a bureaucracy, <laughs> and they have to kill people. Great movie. They have to kill people with with pop culture references. That is the movie, the great John Ritter. That is an underrated Dauber movie. movie. Stay a, tuned. Is it a Peter Hyams yeah. film? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so let's that, do that's Peter Hyams on the director's wall, just so we can do Stay Tuned. My gosh, that's yeah. a great movie. Well, he, yeah. I think he's one of the directors who was also his own cinematographer. Yes, he was one of the first people that I yeah, knew like did way that. before. Like remember Cedar when Bo- Soderbergh did that? And it was a big deal. Yeah, remember when film Twitter like lost their shit? Like Quaron, Paul Thomas Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson, yeah. they're their own cinematographers. I did oh, it when it was like, still thirty five back in the eighties. So you whatever, guys must but... have went crazy when Peter Himes was the first one to do this, right? But on like some Van Damme movie or something. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't mean anything <laughs> is special. Uh, yeah, stay tuned, okay? <laughs> Cap in the Woods. I can see it. Oh, his first movie, it, Peter Hyam's first movie is DP, 2010, The Year We Make Contact. So he was like, I'm going to one-up Stanley Kubrick even more. I'm going to make a sequel and be my own DP. Eat it, Kubrick. <laughs> right, Cap, uh, Cabin in the Woods, right, it is trying to be fun, but and horror movies are the movies where Everything can go wrong, right? And the good guys can lose, and the bad thing happens, and it's a better movie for it, right? It's more satisfying as a story with yeah. uh, with the bad thing happening, with the downer ending. But it's usually as a result of failure, right? Like you tried to do the ancient ritual, you tried to like move the body and bury it in a better place, but that's not how Samara from The Ring works, right? And so then, or even Evil Dead Two is the same thing. Is like they yeah. read from Necronomicon, they think they do it, but then they accidentally open up a portal that pulls Ash into the medieval time. So like they save that moment, but then they fuck up some new thing. They you, know, uh, that, you kill you kill Jason's mother, but then guess what? Jason, Jason the be, zombie, he's, he's not actually real. dead or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, Freddy comes back because yeah. you can't kill you know the. The horrible things that your parents did, or your you dreams. Suffer for. How do you kill your dreams? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But in this movie, or in the version where they they say no, we're not doing that. Screw the world, let it burn. Right? It's just a decision that they would have made. No, I don't know. it's I, like if people like ran towards Jason. I mean, either way, this movie folds in on itself because it doesn't live up to the themes that it starts at the beginning. Having it be a finite, definite ending takes away from what this movie is supposed to be about, which is faith. That's the whole first 70 minutes of the movie is built around, like, you just got to trust us. You just got to believe in what we're saying because God is saying this thing, and you just got to believe it, and you just have to trust us. And from the get-go, you're gonna you're like, well, of course they're not going to immediately believe this because this just sounds crazy. And even Batista's like, I know this sounds crazy, and I know you're not going to believe this, but you just have to trust us. It's all about trust. And having the end be this finite thing of the world is definitely ending does away with the entire theme. The whole point of the movie is moot by then, making then the whole movie 
pointless. And that's why ultimately I did not like it because it feel like that's a note that you would have gotten. Like if I'm picking up on that the first time I'm watching the movie, why did no one say that in the script process of this film? Like that to me, that would be a big like hand raise like in the boardroom. Like, wait a minute. But this thing, this is like a big problem with what your whole movie's about. And so therefore it just means nothing. The end. And I think maybe that's why we didn't take notes and why we forgot about a lot of this movie and had to revisit the Wikipedia page because it ultimately is meaningless at the end of the movie. It doesn't have any meaning because they do away with it themselves while you're watching the movie. Stuff came up. We couldn't record right away. And a month later, after we saw the movie, here we are. And we remembered... I'm surprised at how much I remember. Hey, we're at 75 minutes almost. So we're doing much better. I thought this was going to be like a 30-minute episode. This morning, I was like, I don't remember this movie at you know, all. Like, I've got to read Wikipedia. I've got to re-listen to podcasts. I've got to yeah. reread reviews. I think it'll go down in history, at least, for the movie to finally take Avatar 2 out of the number one spot. Like, Avatar 2, now what? The second highest grossing movie of all time or whatever. was you know reigning supreme for months and yeah. months. And this movie came out and was number one in America because yeah. people still love Shyamalan. He's still – his name 20-something years later still means something. You know, like 23 years later, 24 years later, 99 was six cents. So like he can still – like for his, to his credit, having his name in a movie will make people come to the theater yeah. to see a thing, to see what's going on. What is it? So – and I think he will continue to do that. I think – I hope the movies are better than this. I hope we get back to like older – Something a little more interesting. It is fascinating, too, that he's now made two movies in a row based on previously made material for someone who was once touted as, like, the best original screenplay, best, you know, original idea guy, and have two things in a row now be adapted from something else that somebody wrote. That's, that's, that, yeah. that's fascinating. I wonder if and I with, hope he still has something within him that's an original idea. I hope so, too, though... With both of these works, Knock at the Cabin and Old, which is based on a French graphic novel, novel, he changed them, he changed what happened in the graphic novel of Old enough for it to be a Shyamalan movie and for the changes not to feel like they were made for the sake of being different. It really, to me, doesn't feel that that's why he why he changed the ending of, of the movie from the book. I think because he wants to, he's a Spielberg at heart. So Spielberg doesn't make downer endings. You know, he wants to have it end on a positive note of things are okay. You're not going to kill a kid. Shemelon's never going to kill a kid other than the happening, which was a big deal. Yeah, of course he's not going to go the route of the uh, the world ending. And also I think maybe he, like most people having lived through an actual apocalyptic feeling time over the last three or four years, we don't want to see a movie where the world ends and it's hopeless. We want some shred of hope in this miserable existence that we all live in currently. So I feel like having it be this downer, the world is overending, would not be as well-liked by anybody. You're right, you're right. And so, I, you're right. I, remember, I remember one of the notes the I would have made. I remember one of the notes I would have made if I had been making notes which was yeah it's if you get anxiety from the thought of at any time what i'm watching on tv could be interrupted and then something horrible comes on tv it may give you anxiety if you are anxious about 
breaking news. Yeah. Right? But it's not going to scare you with anything that happens. Mediocre. Maybe his most mediocre movie. You know, like other movies have been big swings and big misses or big swings and big hits. But this is the first one that just kind of feels like a, you know, in later Malton terms, a two and a half star film. Yeah. Not a two star film, not a one, but not a three star. This is two and a half. It's like really in the middle. We're like, there's parts that are really good and there's parts that are stupid, but not terrible or parts that don't make sense. And in the end, it's ultimately like, yeah, I don't need it. Like, like, like I was trying to remember if I, like, about this movie and my wife was like, well, maybe you should just watch it again. We have it, you know, you can watch it on TV. And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I don't need to watch it. I don't ever need to see that movie again. But every other Shyamalan movie I've seen, like Happening, Lady in the Water, as much as I didn't like those movies, I've seen those movies a lot. So there's something to be said about I'm drawn to them in some way, like even beyond this podcast, to watch those movies again, whether it's to you know, you know, stupidly make fun of it or just because I'm fascinated by it or there's something there, even if I, if I have an apprehensive reaction. In this movie, I don't feel like I ever need to see again. It's kind of like, eh, eh, eh. Yeah. No, that's it. That's it. That's the review of the movie. It's, um... Shrug. Oh, so... The way I described how I felt about this movie uh, to Lonnie, to my wife, when I got home from the theater was... First, I had to talk about Peter Bogdanovich for a while. <laughs> Just a warm up. Yeah, the warm because <laughs> right there, uh, TCM has a podcast, and their first season was about Peter Bogdanovich. Nice. And when it got to where he made Daisy Miller, an okay movie, never right? Seen, never seen it. It's a whiff. It's actually a bunt. <laughs> it shows the, the movie screens for the executives. And the executive, one executive kind of shrugs, and Bogdanovich is like, what? Like, you, you didn't like it, or you didn't think it was good? And the executive says, you're Babe Ruth, and you just bunted. <laughs> and that's how I feel about <laughs> Knock at the Cabin. Yeah. I know Shyamalan. I know he can get, hit a home run. I know he can, you know, hit it way into, way into the outfield and... You know, a double or a triple and do RBIs and all the other sports terms. I think I used up all the ones I know. <laughs> but it's like he bunted with no one on base, right? He didn't advance a runner. There was no reason to do it. He got to, to first base maybe and then yeah. the point. Maybe yeah. he got the first base because everyone was confused as to why <laughs> someone on the first swing of the first inning of a game bunted. Man. AJ, we're talking about sports on a movie podcast. This is amazing. <laughs> well, I feel we've done enough. I feel we've done enough for anyone that cares to hear in history. So the hope is that sooner than later, though maybe later based on our track record, we're going to get back into Coppola. And next up, as we've probably said many times before, is The Fantastics and Supernova, two very strange Entries we're doing one episode for both because it's not Coppola's director, but Coppola as like editor slash please fix these movies. We don't know what to do with these movies, sort of magic man. Sort of like you're now the wise sage of filmmaking. Will you fix this Walter Hill film and make it, you know, watchable? Uh, I've never seen either. Uh, and I'm, I'm as as long as it's been since we've done it, 
I actually am excited to watch them, honestly. <laughs> it will happen. I am too but to uh, see what is uh, uh, going on with uh, those movies, especially because yeah. it, unlike um, Hammett or The Way We Were, where he was involved and maybe rumored to have directed Maybe directed some, it, or, yeah. You know, the Fantastics and Supernova, it is both like on the record that he came in and... Will his stamp be on there? Will we cont- is yeah. is the couple a stench somewhere on there, or is it gonna just be like, huh? Could be a, the shortest episode yet, for all we know. And we're we're all have at least an hour to talk about the because it's two movies. But that's next for the director's wall couple cast, and we. But uh, yeah, we're it's an interesting little uh, place to be. Is this weird? Both from the year two thousand, Coppola, Big Daddy movie fixer slash. Post production editor guy, uh, and it'll be fun to talk about Walter Hill movie because I love Walter Hill, and maybe this movie's good. I don't think it will be. It's for Supernova, and I know nothing about the Fantastics. I have no idea who directed that, so that's just like I don't even ever even heard of this damn movie. So yeah, let's let's do it. I'm excited, and it's it's good to be back. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while. So apologies for all the uh, rough edges. This is take three, believe it or <laughs> this not. Is take three. We are. Much more into the scotch than we were when we started because yeah. we, this episode is take three because we we don't know what the hell we're doing. <laughs> Technical difficulties and Rusty. a uh, a unperforated screw top <laughs> bottle on the scotch. <laughs> we got there. <laughs> All right, you can read movie reviews by me at cinemathenandnow.blogspot.com. Brian, anything to plug? Um, sure. I have a movie that's touring America called Make Popular Movies. It's uh, playing and maybe at a local theater near you. Who knows? I'm trying to, you know, infiltrate art house theaters around the nation, around the world to show this little movie that I made uh, that no one wants, but I want you to want it. So have fun. If you if you see it in your local listings, come out. I'll say hi. It's fun. It's fun. I've seen it. <laughs> I've seen it. It is fun. Great. So uh, you can uh, find us on Twitter. Yeah, I think I'm still on Twitter. Why? <laughs> Why? Why? Uh, Why do this to yourself? Yeah, no, actually, I deleted it off my phone a few days ago <laughs> because for some reason it was taking up it was taking up a lot of memory on my phone, like over a gig. Your your phone can only take so much fascism. Right, so I deleted it <laughs> off my phone, and I haven't put it back since, and it might stay that way for a while, honestly. <laughs> but we're still on Twitter, at The Director's Wall. I'm at ajgo 5 I'm on Letterboxd, which has not devolved. Been ruined by neo-Nazis yet? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not yet, not yet. And, and you know what? They will have... They will have posted positive reviews of Triumph of the Will, so they are easy to weed out. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I'm on Letterboxd at, at ajgo 85 as well. And uh, thank you for listening. We will be back again. We will return first to the world of musicals. Because I'm pretty sure the Fantastics is a musical. I didn't know that. And then we will go to outer space for sexy times with James Spader (laughs) and and Peter Fascinelli. Ooh, and isn't Angela Bassett in it? Yeah, that is a sexy space movie. Gosh, yeah, I had no idea. All right, I gotta be ready for that. Will it be 
an in, a great entry in the genre of James Spader has weird sex. Who knows? <laughs> Tune in next time to the director's wall. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Thank you. Shyamalan twist.